You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In the last lecture, we moved from the plane of the theoretical or pure science, study and explanation of the facts, to the realm of the practical, the free choice of means to those ends that pure science tell us are necessary for human existence. And we spoke about ethics and politics, very sketchily indeed, but nevertheless trying to make the point that morality is not a matter just of rules, but of seeking the proper ends to the means that are natural to our human identity. And that that is also true of society. That in society we have to cooperate with each other, and it's part of our nature that we are social. We can't realize our nature and fulfill it without society, without living in community. And that requires a certain organization of society, a certain amount of authority and cooperation. Now we move on to the question, also a practical question, of technology. The various disciplines and arts and sciences by which we control nature so that it will serve society. That is characteristic of the human being also. We know, of course, that animals have a certain kind of technology. The birds know how to build a nest. And we have recently discovered that apes can do certain things with tools, with sticks, and so on, and even teach their young to use these things. But that is all an approach to what is very clear at the human level, and that is that by using our intelligence and our creative freedom, we can gain a control over natural forces. The Greek way of putting that is that art perfects nature. Art perfects nature. That implies that art misused can destroy nature. And it is that of which we've become acutely aware in recent years. One of the great achievements of modern science, quantum physics, was the discovery of nuclear fission. But in the period of the Cold War, that discovery brought the human race to the edge of self-destruction. And that danger of self-destruction through the atomic bomb, the hydrogen bomb, remains with us. We're going to be faced with that perhaps forever. As we get greater power over nature, it can be used creatively to perfect nature or destructively. It can be used for the purposes of peace. It can be used for the purpose of defense and war. 
but it can also be used for the purpose of domination and destruction in warfare. We can commit suicide as a human race. And technology can make it possible for us to do this in ever better ways. That's why we have the environmentalist or green movement. The growing awareness that along with our technology, we are also experiencing a destruction of the environment. In speaking about science, I mentioned that one of the characteristics of all changing things is first of all that they have a place in relation to other bodies and a position in relation to other bodies that maintains their stability. But they also are in a region, a wider area, which is necessary for their existence. And when this comes down to human life, our environment must be very special. There is a concept called the anthropic cosmological principle, which has been put forward by some scientists, particularly two writers, Barrow and Tipler, who have pointed out that if our universe were different than it actually is, even a little bit, if our Earth was a little further from the sun, if the sun was a little bigger or a little smaller, if the universe was a little younger than it is at this moment, life could never have existed on the earth. An intelligent life could never have existed, and science could never have existed. The whole universe looks like it was built to be our home. It used to be said and scientists often pointed that out, we're just a speck of dust in a vast universe. Human beings are not very important. People would say, well, in the Middle Ages, they thought the Earth was at the center of the universe, and therefore that man is important, while in fact, we're only a part of a galaxy, and there are billions of galaxies. Well, that's historically false. It's true that people thought that the Earth was the middle of the universe. But in their thinking, that meant it was the bottom of the universe. The good part of the universe were the heavens, the stars, the planets. And the center of the universe was the bottom of the universe. And the fact that the human being is on this Earth at the bottom of the universe meant that man is the least of all intelligent creatures, the least spiritual being. So the Middle Ages did not have this notion that man is highest thing in the universe. They thought the angels, the seraphim, and the cherubim are the highest things in the universe. But now we see science is showing us that we are unique. It may be their life on other planets, but as we've examined the planets, we find out that they will not sustain life. There may be other solar systems in the universe, but we haven't found any yet. And if there are other solar systems, they have to be just so-and-so, our life will not appear in them. 
Now, it may be that there are other living and intelligent beings, but that's not the direction that science is taking. More and more, it seems as if we are unique. I emphasize that to point out the importance of our control of our environment, the use of our intelligence, because we're not just a speck of dust. Our Earth is a very special place, and it is balanced just so that we human beings could come on the scene. We mustn't destroy it. We must perfect it. We must preserve it and perfect it. Perfecting it means to develop it in its own lines. If you think of a garden, the garden is something natural. It's made up of natural plants and so on. But it can be very beautiful and it can produce very fine fruit and vegetables because it's been cultivated. Intelligence has been made to perfect that bit of nature. And that's what we ought to do with the whole world. We should restore our garden earth, make it something according to its nature, yet a bit better. We should contribute to the perfecting of nature. The fact that we have not done this shows that we don't appreciate our own bodies, which are part of nature. And because of this separation of philosophy and theology on one hand and science on the other, the mechanistic kind of foundation, we have got to think of nature as just a kind of machine that we can do anything with that we want. Now, the environment is not important to us, not simply because it supplies us with food and drink and shelter. It's important as an object of beauty and contemplation. I said in the previous lecture that what is most important in human life is truth meaning. We can possess everything in the world. We can be a Bill Gates. But if our life has no meaning, no understanding, no purpose, it's empty. And it follows then that nature, because it is such a wonderful thing, so wonderfully ordered, and leading us up to a view of God, and perhaps of a spiritual creation, which is even greater than this physical creation. That is very important about environment. And so we're concerned about biodiversity, and people say, well, if we destroy these kinds of plants and animals that can't be restored, we may not be able to make the medicines that are made out of their bodies. But that's not the only reason. Life would not be so beautiful if we did not have a beautiful environment to contemplate, wonderful in its variety and its order. So the preservation of the environment is not only for purely practical reasons, it's for contemplative reasons. Now, there is a kind of super skill super engineering, 
that regulates our control of the environment, and we call it economics. Economics is a science that was developed. The very Greek word is indicative of this. It's from the Greek words that means the law of the home. The law of the home, oikos, home, and logos. And economics is the ruling or architectural science that puts together all the forms of engineering that regulate our control of the environment. Because it's a study of resources and the human physical needs that these resources must be used to supply. Unfortunately, economics at the present time is often looked on as simply a way to make profit, to make money. But we all know that it is also of great social and political importance. Past generations have been very poor. Their productivity is low. And with a growing population, we need great productivity of material goods. Even in our country, the richest in the history of the world, we have a lot of poor people. We need to be more productive. And economics is concerned about productivity, regulating the use of scarce resources, scarce whether they are material resources or the persons who use these resources, so as to supply human needs and make supply and demand somehow balance each other. Does this mean that the profit motive is evil? Not at all. Profit means that the individual works and tries to produce things so that they may have a living for themselves and their family and may exercise their creativity. Business, rightly carried out, is a very creative activity, a great use of intelligence and free will. It's human and enhancing. In the Middle Ages, there was a tendency to think of business as evil, but that's not a correct view. Business can be a very good thing. But whatever we do always has to be in terms not only of our individual good, but the good of the society in which we live. Consequently, profit cannot be the ultimate motive of business. The ultimate motive of business and economics has to be to meet human needs without waste. It can't destroy the environment, and yet these human needs, both the physical needs and the needs for contemplation and meaning, have to be met by the use of our resources. And the economist is supposed to show how that can be done and to spur the motivation to do it, to be productive for the common good and not merely for the individual personal good. Consequently, the government has to regulate personal greed. 
If people are productive only to make profit, pretty soon they will be making profit out of things that are harmful to society. Pornography, the sale of drugs, all kinds of evil things that are destructive of human life are very profitable. They cannot and should not be done. We've had the example of the struggle over the cigarette industry, as we've gradually come to see that this very profitable industry is harmful to the common good, and it has to be closely regulated. This means that the debate that we hear all the time in politics between those who push the free market and those who seek government control, that these are two extreme views. And we know from the teaching of the church that a middle road has to be taken here. We have to allow sufficient freedom of initiative and productivity and on the other hand, we have to control this for the common good. Particularly, I think, it's not only the production of harmful things, but of wasteful things. Human life does not need to be a life of consumerism. If the goal of our life is understanding and knowledge, we don't need an awful lot of material goods. We need the chance to think, to pray, to enjoy each other's society and friendship and companionship, but we don't need to have five cars and six television sets. Consumerism is destructive of our society and our environment because it is something extremely wasteful. Now, if we put this together, if we put together what I said about ethics and politics, and what I've just been saying about technology, we see that they go together. Good politics is an ordering of the society to meet the needs of every member of the society. I mentioned at the end of the lecture on ethics and politics that Aristotle said that what he called a mixed regime or a republic is the best sort of society, a political organization. It's one in which there is an executive who unifies the country. There's also a chosen body of people who have the time and the experience and the expertise to consider the political problems. And then there is some recourse to the consent of the people to the decisions of these higher bodies. There's also another principle that we need to bring in, which is called the principle of subsidiarity. Subsidiarity means that in a community, although there has to be a hierarchy of authority. Otherwise, you don't have an organization. Nevertheless, decisions should be kept as close to the people affected as possible. Nobody knows how a policy is working out as well as the people at the bottom. 
They're the people who have to live with the consequences of decisions made by authority. And they know how this is working out in their life. Consequently, in a well-ordered community, decisions are left as low down in the hierarchy of decision as possible. On the other hand, and it's part of this same principle of subsidiarity, the higher levels have to supervise the lower levels to see how their decisions are affecting the whole, the common good. And they may see that at the lower level there are failures of one sort and another, and then they have to supplement the lower level, step in and do what the lower level is failing to do for the common good. However, it's also part of the principle of subsidiarity that the higher authority should not permanently replace the lower authority. Instead, in supplementing it, it should also make an effort to correct and make possible for the lower level to carry out its tasks better. So in a good society, the broad policies are made at the top. The particular local decisions are made at the bottom. And there is a constant interplay between higher levels and lower levels. I might mention that that is true of the church as well. Sometimes people say the Catholic Church is a monarchy. I don't think so. The Christian Church had its type in the government of Israel established by Moses. And if you go back and look at the description of how Moses established his government, you'll find it says that at first he tried to run everything by himself as the leader of the people. Then God told him, that's not going to do, Moses. You have to choose a council. And then under that, you divide up the people finally into groups of ten and leave the lower decisions at the bottom the higher decisions at the top. Actually, that is the basic structure of the Catholic Church. A study by a management organization said that the Catholic Church has the flattest hierarchy of organization of any large corporation in the world. Our church is organized with local regions under the bishop, the parish, and the bishops have direct access to the Pope. They visit him every five years at least. There is a great deal of interplay of subsidiarity in the Catholic Church. It's not nearly enough, and that ought to be one of the things we're thinking about as we bring these political considerations into relation to theology. How we can make the Catholic laity more active in the church. Our problem is that so many of the lay people know little about the mission of the church. They're not well instructed in the faith. They don't know what the church is supposed to do or how it's doing it. And they have contact maybe once a week or once a month. They're not ready to play a big role in the church. We have to try to overcome that. 
so that everybody cooperates and makes their contribution in the church, and yet that it has great unity. Our church is a global church, the biggest organization in the whole world, and it needs, consequently, a powerful pope to direct it, to keep it together against the forces of disintegration. When you take away the shepherd, Jesus says, the sheep are scattered. We can't allow the church to be scattered. We need to hold it together. When we look then at ethics, politics, and technology, we see how they are all rooted in human nature. It's to the extent that we understand human nature that we will be able to recognize our needs and choose the right means to attain those needs. And to know ourselves, we have to know more and more about natural science. That is why I said earlier that the future of theology is particularly in the union, harmonious cooperation between natural science and theology. Without that, and the kind of deeper understanding of human nature that it can provide us, we cannot move successfully into the future. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.